Well, uh, it's been a couple weeks. We've gotten back into our study through the book of Revelation, and we are up to Revelation chapter 6. So if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter 6, give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like, became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come." And who can stand? This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the opening verses of the book of Revelation promise a blessing. It says, blessed, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as he's promised here upon us for reading and keeping his word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for your scriptures in general, but thank you for this book and thank you for the blessing that you promise uh, that that attends all who read it and hear it and especially those who keep it. Uh, Work in us by your spirit this morning that we might hear aright these things from your word in in Revelation chapter 6. Give us grace to read and hear and to keep all that is written in it that we might receive your great blessing. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit once again. Uh, work in us by your spirit that we might have eyes and to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Give us grace to be doers of the word and not hearers only, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, 
We're in chapter 6 of Revelation. You might, If you were here last week, you saw in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation 5 was about the Lamb of God. Remember, it, it, uh, there was this kind of a, a search in the heavens for who was worthy to open the scroll that was in God's right hand, that scroll that had how many seals? Seven seals. It's a, it's a picture of perfection. It's perfectly sealed, and who could open it? No one except one. No one in all of creation was worthy to open it except the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God was found worthy, and so that's what we found in chapter 5. Well, chapter 6, what happens now? The Lamb of God, who alone was worthy to open the scroll and break those seven seals, starts to do just that. He starts breaking seals and opening the scrolls. And what happens each time he breaks a seal? You don't just get to see something. You know, that's kind of how we would picture it. It's like a book. You open it, you get to read the contents. He doesn't just get to read it or see it. He starts executing it. In other words, he's kind of the executor, so to speak, of God, of, of the decrees of God found in that scroll. And as he breaks each seal, things start to happen. Things start coming to pass that were written in that sealed scroll. That's what we're looking at this morning. We see the risen and ascended and reigning Christ going forth conquering and to conquer as he's opening these, these seals in the scroll. You know, very often we, we have this picture sometimes uh, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, you know, he was crucified for our sins, he was dead and buried, he rose again on the third day, he ascended, we say this every time we, we recite the apostles and Nicene creeds, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, what, what is he doing there? We, I think sometimes we have this picture in our minds, not a real picture, but that Jesus isn't doing anything, that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, just sitting around waiting for the real things to happen at the end. And that's not the picture the scriptures paint, is it? Is Jesus passively sitting in heaven right now doing nothing but twiddling his thumbs? No, he's ruling over all things for the sake of his church. He is he is bringing forth the will of his Father on this earth. He is the one who's with us until the end of the age as we make disciples of all the nations. Now, in this chapter, it might be a familiar chapter if you've read the book a number of times. It's, it's in this chapter that we... Uh, just heard about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often called. Uh, we also hear and read of John's description of, of, a, of a strange phrase. Maybe if you've never read it before, maybe it kind of jumped off the page at you when I was reading it. The wrath of the Lamb. It, it sounds so backwards. Remember John was told, uh, you know, there was the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, you know, the one who had conquered, and when he turned around in the previous chapter, what did he see? Not a lion, he saw... A lamb standing as if it had been slain or sacrificed. Well, here we, we hear we hear of the the wrath of the lamb. As strange as that may sound to our ears. Now, these things in this chapter and in the rest of the book of Revelation, they're not written to be a terror to believers. They're not written to be a terror to you if you're a Christian. They're written to comfort you and to assure you. They're for your assurance and your comfort. And they're there, they're there to assure us that all of these things that we're reading about, these awful sounding things, they're a part of the outworking of the sovereign purposes and plan of God. There's a reason that they happen when the Lamb of God breaks the seal. He breaks the seal, something happens. What does it mean? He's in charge of all of it. He's in sovereign control of all of it in bringing it all to pass. It's not for our harm, it's for our good. As Paul says in Romans 8.37, he says, No, in all these things we are what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's 
you know, William Hendrickson has that book on the book of Revelation called More Than Conquerors. That's where he gets that title from, and he's right. That's what the whole theme of Revelation is about. It's what it's meant to teach us, that Christ conquers over all, and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When Paul says, in all these things, that we're more than conquerors in all these things, what are all these things that he's talking about? He mentions them by name. He says in the previous two verses, verses 35 and 36, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and then finally being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's not a very glamorous, not a very positive sounding picture of of Christ's people on this earth during this age. But what does he say? Even in those things, Christ conquers and you conquer through him. In other words, no matter how that looks, victory is assured if you're a believer in Christ. Now, again, once again, when we're reading through Revelation, you know, I'm, I'm going to apologize left and right every time I'm preaching through this book and, and say I'm going to disappoint you in the sense that I'm not going to try to answer every possible question that you might have about every detail that you might have a question about in these visions. Uh, not saying that those things aren't important, but I think one thing that we have to remember is the book of Revelation is often talked about, it's often described as a picture book. Now, not actual pictures, but what is what is John doing here? He's painting a verbal, a word picture for us in all these chapters. And we don't want to, you know, what's the saying? We don't want to lose the forest for the sake of the trees. We don't want to get so bogged down. And what does this little detail mean that we forget the, to get the whole picture? We have to make sure that we get the big picture, so to speak, of this of this picture book that John is painting for us here. And so we're not going to go through these chapters in exhaustive detail. It might feel exhaustive, but it won't be exhaustive detail. So what I'm trying to do, what we're going to try to do in the weeks that come is, whenever it's possible, I'm going to take a a whole chapter at a time. Rather than spending you know a week on a paragraph or even a verse, as some might be tempted to do, we're going to try to take large sections of this book to try to keep that big picture in mind as we go through, and I hope that you'll find that helpful both for your faith and for your encouragement. Now, this uh, the study of the book of Revelation, uh, especially in a chapter like this one, it has a lot of frightening imagery. You know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I did not like reading this book. I would read it, and I, I was confused by it, much like I was a lot of the Old Testament prophetic books, which have similar imagery, and I thought, oh, this is about how bad things are going to get. I don't really want to know about that. I don't really want to know about those kinds of things. I found those kinds of things frightening and disturbing. But I think it's important for us to keep in mind the purpose of this book. Remember we were in about, in the first chapter, a blessing promised to those who read it aloud and, and hear it, read, and keep it. Um, this book and this chapter, as strange as it may sound to hear, uh, these things are intended for the comfort of suffering saints. They are intended for the encouragement of the persecuted church. Those who are suffering in the church, they don't have a problem reading Revelation like we might do. They understand it just fine when they when they read it. It's much like the Apostle Paul writes when he wrote a letter. You know, he wrote two letters that we have in the Scriptures to the to the church in the place called Thessalonica. And in chapter four of his first letter, First Thessalonians, what did Paul do? He wrote, you know, to us it seems long, but it really isn't like a paragraph or so about the return of Christ and what we were supposed to understand about it. And at the very close of that section, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 to 18, he writes this. 
He says, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then he adds this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so I would say, if, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are justified, forgiven, and accepted by the Lord through Christ by faith in Him, nothing in this book should frighten you. You should be able to read these words to each other and say, encourage one another with these words. That's what they're written. Biblical eschatology is meant to encourage believers, not discourage and not frighten them. These things should not terrify you, but encourage you. And again, keep in mind that blessing talked about in the first chapter of the book. May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to make even this chapter, as we go through it this morning, a blessing to us as we read it and hear it, and Lord willing, as we keep it uh, today. We're going to look, uh, Lord willing, at three things in our text, three things in chapter 6. The first thing we're going to look at is the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often called. The second thing we're going to look at is the cry of the martyrs, the cry of the martyrs. And thirdly, we're going to see the wrath of the Lamb. So the first thing is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Remember, Jesus, what does he do? He's the only one that's worthy to break the seals on that scroll in the right hand of God. Well, here in chapter 6, he starts to break them, and things start to happen in earnest. In verses 1 to 2, John writes this, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now each... Each one of the four horses is a, different, is a different color. And this first horse is is white, and its rider is described as having a bow, you know, a weapon, and having a crown on his head. And what does this royal rider, this conquering king, do? Well, he goes out and he wages war. He, he goes out, what does it say, conquering and to conquer. His purpose was to conquer. Kind of reminds you of Alexander the Great. He just went, and everywhere he went, everywhere he placed his foot, he conquered. It was said by someone that he wept. Why? Because there was no more. There were no more worlds for him to conquer. Well, that's what this king, this picture, and this vision is doing. He's going out and he's conquering. He's taking over other places and other lands. Now, many commentators believe that this particular rider, this one on the white horse, many view this this rider as Christ Himself. They view this this particular rider of the four as Christ himself, and it's not without reason. Why? Jesus is, is Jesus a conquering king? Yes. Is he conquering right now? Yes. Psalm 110.1, what does God the Father say to him? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I do what? I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In, in the, that opening vision of, of Christ, in, in the glorified Christ in Revelation 1, what is coming out of his mouth? A sharp two-edged sword. It's a weapon. Now, what's the weapon? His word. But he is conquering. It's not less than, it's greater than. His kind of conquering is greater than a military kind of conquering. So he is, uh, he is going out and he's waging war in a sense. Now, he's also pictured in Revelation 19 towards the end of the book. It describes him as this. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, so another white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who's this one that's making war and judging in Revelation 19? It's Christ. 
says, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John chapter 1, same author as Revelation. The Word of God is Christ. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you can see why many commentators would read chapter 6 when they see chapter 19 and they say, this must be the same person. It must be Christ. He is a king. He's riding out to conquer. He's on a white horse. You can see why that might be understood that way. Uh, a what, now, a white horse. What is what is a white horse for? When you think of a white horse, other than the Lone Ranger, what do you think of? It's a picture of, it's like a military parade. The king comes to town after a victory riding a white steed, a white war horse. So a white horse has an idea, has this picture. It's a picture of royalty. It's a picture of military victory. Now, the fact that that's the case, uh, that I think that means that these two riders, Christ in 19 and this rider of the four horsemen, they don't have to be the same individual. It's the same kind of picture. It's a conquering picture. It's a military picture, but it doesn't mean, uh, even though the horse is also white in both, that the identity of the rider is the same in both of these places in Revelation. In fact, I believe the way that these four horses in chapter 6 are lumped together actually is an indication that it's not Christ. He's not one of four. He's, he is alone on his own. He is set apart by himself. I believe he is, uh, he is sovereignly sending this rider out, but I don't think this particular rider is him himself. Uh, I think this rider on the white horse is not Jesus Christ, but I think it represents, in, in a general sense, war and military conquest and people dying through it in this, on this earth. How many people have died throughout history, both soldiers and civilians alike? How many have died through war? How many are still dying today through these things? And these things, in some way, we are to understand them from this chapter as being an act of God's just judgment in this world. In some sense, these things, wars, are an act of God's judgment, his temporal judgment on this earth. The second horseman, the one on the bright red horse in verse 3. In verse 4, we're told that this one was, quote, permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. I don't think this is just war. This is also acts of murder and violence in, in general. How many people throughout the history of this world, even since the days of Christ, have died through such kinds of violence? How many are still dying today through those things? And those things, too, as bad as they are, in some sense, are acts of God's temporal judgment in this in this world. When you see the Lamb open the third seal, what does John see? What kind of horse does John see? He says in verses 5 to 6, when he, that's Christ, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and here's his favorite word, Behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, a denarius, if you have a King James, I think it says a penny. 
The King James, when you say a penny, it makes it sound like things are cheap. Denarius was a day's wage. And so, you know, living in California, we can sympathize at least a little bit with this idea that things are expensive, that it's hard to make ends meet. It's harder to make ends meet here than just about anywhere else in our in our country. Well, that when you when you pay a, a denarius for a quart of wheat, you're you're giving your whole day's pay for a meal. And not a meal that feeds a family, a meal that feeds probably the one person, the worker. So this is things are bad. This is a time of famine. The black horse and its rider represent famine and lack. And so when scarcity, famine, and things like think about our own country's history, the history of the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and things like that, when those things happen, they don't just happen by accident. Those things too are in some in some ways an act those, those things are acts of God's judgment. Remember that passage in Ezekiel 14 that we read earlier? What, what was one of the things he did? He sent famine in the land. And it was a judgment on the land for idolatry and unbelief. You know, I, I don't want to get political here, but I keep reading about this Green New Deal and how they, the, the solution to all the uh, storms in the world and all the, uh, you know, hurricanes and whatnot. The real solution is to raise taxes. And if we just raise taxes enough, $93 trillion, it'll stop the weather. Uh, well, I would say we do have a, a problem with our environment in some ways and with the weather and with famine and whatnot, but what's the solution? What did God say in Ezekiel 14? Repent. You want to see, you want to see things change? Repent. That's what our land needs to, our, our land needs to repent and turn back to God. That's, that's the real new deal that we need, not some cockamamie thing cooked up by politicians who don't know the Lord. But those things are not by accident. They're, they're, they're sent forth into the land by God. Lastly, we're told of that last horse. It, it says a pale horse whose rider was, the rider's name was what? Death. And Hades followed him. If some of you are old enough like me to remember the old Clint Eastwood movie, Pale Rider, if you ever watched Western. Well, Pale Rider, the, the name of that movie was borrowed from this text, from Revelation chapter 6. You might recall in one of the scenes when he's coming forth, he's riding into town on a pale horse, and they're reading this text as he rides uh, into one of the scenes in the movie. Now, the movie, uh, the, the rider wasn't pale in Revelation 6. It was the horse, so it's an odd way to, to use the, the title, but he's the rider on the pale horse. Well, this horse isn't just a light color. I don't know what you picture in your mind when you hear pale horse. You think, well, he's not white. Maybe he's off-white. Maybe he's a yellow horse. I don't know. I'm not a horse expert. Uh, but pale here is, we get the word pallor from it. It's a sickly color. It's kind of a, a green color. It's, if you saw it, you'd be grossed out. You, you'd be like, what is wrong with this horse? This is not a healthy-looking horse. And that, that's a hint about what this horse is meant to represent. This horse and its rider are meant to represent pestilence and disease, the same kind of thing that was mentioned back in Ezekiel chapter 14. How often throughout history have great epidemics of disease swept through a land, killing multitudes of people? And when that happens, we are to understand those things too, as in, as in some way an act of God's judgment, his temporal judgment in history. Half the point of Christ opening these seals is to show they aren't accidents. That they're, they're, they're him, the outworking of God's plan through the hand of the Lamb of God, through Christ. Now this vision alludes to or borrows imagery from the Old Testament, like they always seem to do in the book of Revelation. Now, 
you know, if you read through Revelation, if you if you notice it, if you take your time and don't rush through it, you're going to see imagery from the Old Testament repeatedly. In fact, I would say it's practically impossible to understand Revelation without your Old Testament, kind of keeping one eye on your Old Testament, and all kinds of places throughout the Old Testament. It's put there as a hint. I think it's it's put there as kind of a uh, an interpretive guide for us. You read the Old Testament to get an idea of what's going on in the book of Revelation. Those similarities we are to understand as being there for a purpose. That the book of Zechariah also uses the same kind of imagery of of these four horsemen. Although Zechariah in chapter six he doesn't speak of just four horses. He speaks of four chariots drawn by teams of horses, and those horses pulling those chariots are of four different colors, just like the ones we read of in Revelation chapter 6. Zechariah 6, verses 1 through 4 says this, Again, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there's that word again, behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Now, we're not really told much in that chapter about what they did. They are they are described as patrolling the earth from the four winds. Now, when you talk about the four winds or the four corners of the earth, I know the earth is round, uh, but it's an idea of the entire earth being in view here. Not, nothing being left, no stone being left unturned. These These chariots, just like the four horses, in, in Revelation, they patrol everywhere. And I think what the picture is, they, they, they watch and they execute the will and the justice and judgment of God upon the earth whenever God and wherever God wants them uh, to do it. Likewise, our text from Ezekiel 14 from our scripture reading this morning, we're not told of four horsemen in that text, are we? It doesn't mention four horses, but it mentions the exact same four things that we read about here in our chapter, in our sermon text. The same four things uh, that the Lord sent on Israel itself, even upon Jerusalem. You know, of all the nations, of all the places on earth to have those things sent upon them, uh, we should be shocked that it was the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem that had those things poured out upon them. Uh, that's that's what Ezekiel says. And and what are those four judgments that we saw in Ezekiel chapter fourteen? Famine. Verses 12 to 14, wild beasts, verses 15 to 16, the sword, verses 17 to 18, and pestilence or disease, Ezekiel 14, 19 to 20. Those are the same four things mentioned, similar things, in Revelation chapter 6. And in Ezekiel 14, 21, this is what God calls those things. He calls them, my four disastrous acts of judgment. They weren't accidents. They didn't just happen to happen God sent them, and he sent them as a chastisement, as an act of judgment, even upon Jerusalem of all places. And so you and I are to understand and believe that when we we see these kinds of things happening in our world, they're not accidents. The Lord Jesus Christ is in control of all these things. They are to be regarded in some way as a part of God's sovereign decree being carried out or executed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're also to see them as, in some sense, an act of God's temporal judgment in this world against all the wickedness and unbelief in the world and against especially the persecution of his church. You know, the, the persecuted church, when they read Revelation 6, they don't shrink back in horror. 
they say as those, those martyrs did, how long, O Lord? When's it going to happen? When are you going to make this all right? That is what they cried out. That's what happened in AD 70. You know, many commentators, I think, make too much of that. Many make too little of it. I think it's a little bit of both. Those four horsemen that we read about, the things they represented, those things all took place in Jerusalem when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. There was war, there was conquest, there was famine, there was disease. All these things happened then. And they happened not just then and there, but I think in other times and places in the history of the world as well. But they they happened because of unbelief and of severe persecution of God's people in those places. Well, that brings us to the second part of our text, the cry of the martyrs in verses 9 to 11. We read this. It says, when he opened, that's Christ, when he opened the fifth seal, we're done with the horses now. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, there's the, There's a a good title for the Lord in our chapter. O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here the the vision that, that Jesus gives to John kind of switches gears. We go from the horses the scene of these four horsemen riding forth on the earth. Uh, now we have a picture of heaven. We go from judgment on the earth to, to the throne room, in a sense, of heaven, even the temple. And you have a picture of the saints in heaven, even those who have been martyred for their testimony to the word of God in the name of Christ. And and they're crying out to God. And what is their cry? What are they saying? Their Their cry is their prayer. They're praying. They're in the presence of God, and they're praying, and they're saying, to how long and what happens? God hears them. God answers them in the vision. He gives them a very specific answer. He's still attentive to their prayers. You know, the, the, the unbelieving world, the, the, the world that persecutes believers and, and martyrs them, they think when they kill the saints of God that they're done with them, that their influence, their prayers and things are silenced. Not so. Revelation 6 says they're, they're still talking to God. And God still hears them. They haven't gotten rid of them at all. They've made them better prayers. They've actually shot themselves in the foot in some ways because they're, the saints in heaven are even closer to God in some ways and are praying and God is hearing them. And what do they ask of God? They ask of God to judge the wicked and avenge their blood. And what does God say? You know, we often hear theologians speak out against what we call imprecatory prayers. They, oh, that's not, that's not proper to be on the, the, the lips of a saint of God in the New Testament age. Now, imprecatory prayers are not prayers of vengeance. They are not self-righteous prayers. It is a prayer for the just judgment of God and making things right. And God doesn't, when they say, how long, O Lord, what does God, what does God not say? God doesn't say, oh, no, no, you got this whole thing wrong, people. What do you thought? You, we don't, we don't do that anymore. That was Old Testament stuff. No, he says, wait. It's coming. You gotta wait. It'll come, and, and there's a timetable on it, isn't there? He says, when the last, you know, when the number of the martyrs is filled up, that's when it's gonna come. It may seem like it tarries a long time, but God will, will judge. He will avenge His people who have been martyred. He will answer the cries of His people. Did they take vengeance for themselves? No, they laid down their lives for their testimony to Christ. They left judgment 
They left vengeance to God. What does Romans 12:19 say? It says, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That takes faith. Faith not to, to take back, you know, an eye for an eye on your own, but to say God will make it right. That's what you and I are called to do, to suffer for the name of Christ and to trust that as bad as it may look, God will make it right one day. One day this whole thing, all the evil in this world, all the things that the church, God's people have suffered, God will make it all right again. He will right all the wrongs. And that is to be a comfort for the people of God, especially a comfort for the church. God's just judgment in this world and also the judgment of the the wrath to come it's always intended for the comfort of God's people. You know, very often, think about the Old Testament. Think about the Exodus, you know, probably the biggest uh, salvation of the Old Testament. How did God deliver his people? Through an act of judgment upon Egypt. Very often in Scripture, it's the same kind of way. God sends judgment, and that act of judgment is how he delivers his people. Now, there's a few things I think you and I need to take note of about these these martyrs in in, in, the, in heaven that have suffered greatly, they have been killed and put to death for their faith. The first thing to notice is where are they? Not a trick question. They're in heaven. They're in heaven. They're in the presence of God himself. The world in killing them sought to destroy them, but ultimately they were not able to do them any lasting harm at all, were they? The world thought they got the last laugh in killing them, but what did they do? They ushered them right into heaven in the presence of God forever. Can the world harm you as a believer? You know what did Jesus say? He said, don't, feel the, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. Fear him who can kill both. And who's that? God. The believers who are martyred for their faith in Christ and their witness to, his, to the name of, of Jesus Christ and his gospel, when they're killed for the faith, they're in heaven with the Lord. I think that's something we're supposed to take comfort from. The second thing we notice, they're not just in heaven. Where in heaven in this vision are they? Under the altar. What's the, what is an altar for? It's a place of sacrifice. I think what that's trying to tell us here is their debts, as bad as they were, they're not meaningless to God. They're precious in God's sight as if they were offered as a sacrifice. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote of his own impending martyrdom, he talks about his life being poured out as an offering. Same picture here in Revelation chapter 6. Their sacrifice, their death was a sacrifice and it did not go unnoticed by God. Their lives were not meaningless. They're not insignificant. Their deaths were not for nothing. Now, the same kind of thing can be, I know I'm always, I'm always connecting Acts to Revelation uh, with good reason. Remember in the book of Acts, I'll let you read it on your own. It's only 28 chapters long. But you, know, you read about Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen. And you know when I preached, this happens to me a lot. I've read books of the Bible forever and a day. But when I preach to them, I have to slow down and I have to think more about them. Maybe I should have been doing that all along, but I'm not that smart. But, you know, well, in, in Acts, Stephen, this, the first one of the first deacons, we, we say, this man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and you're thinking, man, this guy's going to do great things. God is going to do some amazing things through Stephen. He gives this incredible speech in Jerusalem. What happens? He gets stoned. They stone him to death. He gets, I mean, snuffed out and... When I was preaching through it, I thought, what a waste. This guy was like a rock star for the gospel, and poof, he's gone. And and then the story just goes on, and then Paul shows up. Well, it's easy to think, what a waste. Was Stephen's martyrdom a waste? 
No. In fact, when you read through Acts, at least three other times when Paul gives what we would call his testimony, he mentions Stephen. What are you, you, what are you and I supposed to take from that? The Lord, who's sovereign over all things, used the death of Stephen, the, the, the wicked martyrdom of Stephen, to save Paul. And what did he do with Paul? He's one of the guys who turned the world upside down. Christ is the one who did the turning. But he reached all the way to the ends of the earth with the gospel. He went from Jerusalem all the way to Rome before he died. With the churches were planted left and right. The book of, of Acts paints a picture of much like this, where persecution spread the church out, and what happened? They took the gospel with them, and churches were planted, and disciples were made. The devil is helpless against the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. What's the third thing about these martyrs under the, under the, in the altar in heaven? They were given white robes and they were told to what? They were told to rest, not just wait, but rest. They're at rest from their labors, they're at rest from their suffering, and they're told to wait until the total number of martyrs was complete and then the Lord would judge the wicked and what are the right, what about white robes? You saw a white horse. What is a white robe meant to convey? That they're justified. That their sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Their sins were forgiven. They were justified in the sight of a holy God. They were accepted as righteous in God's sight. Why? Because they're accepted in Christ by faith. They weren't, the world didn't think they were worthy to live. And what does God do? God shows his approval. He justifies them by faith in Christ. On your own, you cannot stand before God. You cannot stand in the presence of God on the last day of judgment on your own. But if you're in Christ, you can. Are you in Christ this morning? Have your sins been washed away by the blood of the Lamb? That's what these martyrs had the privilege of having. Not because they were martyred. They were martyred because they believed in Christ and were justified in him. Their sins were washed away and their blood shows no more on them. They have white robes to stand before God, even in his presence, even able to cry out in prayer, and God hears and answers them. Well, that brings us to the last thing in our text in verses 12 to 17, and that's the lamb, the wrath of the lamb. Notice when the lamb breaks the sixth seal, what happens? He comes in judgment. Verses 12 to 14 describe these things in kind of cataclysmic terms. And it's very similar. If you read the Old Testament prophets, you'll see the same kind of imagery used uh, in the Old Testament. It says in verses 12 to 14, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, by a wind. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I mean, this is like end of the world, end of the created order type stuff. Everything is being turned upside. This is a vision of the wrath of God. This is a vision of the wrath of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, this is a, a word picture. This word picture is not intended primarily to tell you what things will look like. It is intended to tell you what things will be like. This does not mean that we're going to literally see the sky roll back like a scroll. We don't know. But it's going to be like that. Probably, It's probably the, greater than that, but we can't think of anything more cataclysmic to, to picture. His wrath against the wicked will be as if the very fabric of the created universe was coming apart. That's 
That's what it's going to seem like, not to you, but to the wicked, if you're in Christ. It'll be terrifying beyond description for the unrepentant, but it will be a comfort for believers, especially those who have been suffering persecution and martyrdom. Now notice the people that are that are in view here during the judgment, kings and generals, rich, everyone slave and free, verse 15, all of them who remain in their unbelief and rebellion against God will be in utter terror trying to hide from the wrath of God. What does it say in verses 16 to 17? They will be, quote, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's a picture of the last judgment. Now, the Lamb of God, the Christ, has come in judgment in some ways uh, before that last coming of Christ. Not, he hasn't come bodily, but A.D. 70 was a coming of Christ in judgment. Not bodily, but he sent that judgment. When the Roman legions destroyed the Jerusalem, tore down the temple, that was an act of judgment. That was an act of those four horsemen going forth in judgment. And he comes in judgment upon wicked nations and wicked peoples throughout history. And he still does that today. He will still avenge his people today. And that is to be a comfort to you if you're a Christian. But especially to be a comfort to those uh, in the church in other places of this world where, where real suffering takes place for the sake of the gospel. One day, as the, the Bible says here in chapter 6, the wrath of the Lamb will finally come. And what what do those what do those unbelievers say in the, in verse 17? Who can stand? The day the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Only those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb who was slain to save sinners will be able to stand in that day. Think about the irony of that phrase the wrath of the lamb. The savior of sinners is also the judge of all the earth. When you and I recite the apostles creed And the Nicene Creed, what do we say every time? He shall come again with glory to do what? To judge the living and the dead. The Lamb of God is the one who's going to come and do that. And so the Bible tells us you must either find refuge in Christ by faith, or you will seek in vain to find refuge from him on the day of his wrath. If you're in Christ, this chapter and every chapter in Revelation is there to tell you, if you're in Christ, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you and died for your sins. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you that although it has many images and visions and things that we have trouble understanding, Lord, one thing is sure, that, that, that Christ, your Son, our Lord, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, that he is the one opening, uh, breaking those seals on the scroll of your decrees, that he is carrying out your purposes in this world, that he is gathering and defending his church even now against all his enemies and ours. And Lord, we thank you that that Christ, uh, your Son, our Lord, is, is building his church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it, and that if we are in Christ, uh, no matter what happens to us, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thank you, Lord, for sending, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to die the death that we deserve so that we might not face your wrath for our sins that we deserve but that he took that in our place and rose again on the third day for our justification, Lord. We pray that you would have mercy upon many, especially here in our town, that you would uh, open many, many, many people's eyes to the gospel, that they may see their sin, see their need for the Savior, and turn to him and have life in his name. Lord, we thank you that you're, you are the just judge of the earth who always does right. 
We thank you that all these injustices that we we are upset about and we, we complain about and even we, Lord willing, that we pray about them, that we know that one day you will make all these things right. That one day you'll make all the bad things come untrue. One day you will both show forth your justice and encourage uh, all of your people in, in heaven and on earth that we will see your just judgment and rejoice with you and rejoice in what you're doing. And Lord, we just thank you that in all these things, because of Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.